Welcome to Flow with Arman Asadi. Welcome, welcome, beautiful people. Papa Squad, sit down. I have my friend Ari Mizell in the house today. Ari is known for being the founder of lessdoing.com. He is the author of Less Doing More Living and also the author of, excuse me, The Replaceable Founder. He also has an awesome podcast that you should check out called The Host of called the host. <laughs> Let's run with it. Called the host of Less Doing Podcast. No, he is the host of the Less Doing Podcast. This is what happens when I turn video on and I try to multitask. I'm an awful, awful multitasker, which I wish I'd talked to Ari about today. Shit. Ari, I might need you back to talk about multitasking. But today was one of the most important conversations I've had in a long time on the topic of really what does it look like to be effective in your work? And the answer was really surprising. You know, when I think about doing less, being efficient, being effective, using my time correctly and powerfully as an entrepreneur, I think of people like Ari. Ari is someone who's been doing this for a long time. I mean, it was almost a, a decade ago that I first heard of Ari and we started talking and we started collaborating on the different ways, you know, I was doing productivity as well. And I saw Ari as somebody in the space who was just doing something so unique. And over the years, he's just continued to build an incredible business an incredible brand and these books and teaching the most fascinating people in the world, not just as a mentor, but as a consultant working with them to help them be more effective. What I found most interesting about my conversation with Ari today was the deeper why, like what is the purpose of all of this? And it actually really surprised me. So I won't spoil it, no spoiler alerts. Let's cut right to it. With that said, as you're listening along, if you wanna join the conversation, if you wanna talk to me about the conversation, shoot me a text at 619-825-2595. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast, Flow with Armand Asadi on Apple and Spotify, wherever you're listening. With that said, without further ado, my conversation with Ari. Enjoy. I was almost going to say thanks for making time. You're a busy man, but I don't know if I would think of you as a busy man from the outside. I think of you as a man who is diligent and proactive and intentional about how he lives his life and how he uses his time. And those are two very different things to me. So it's about the constraints that you love. It's about the uh, it's about how much you love yourself and your life outside of work in so many ways. And I want to, I just want to deeply go into the the philosophy that drives all of this in general today because I think that's where the juice is. And if a person can deeply understand the why for what drives you, then I think it becomes a lot easier to go. Oh, okay, cool. I'll 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 jump on asynchronous communication. I'll I'll try that. I'll show up to one of Ari's you know live events and maybe learn something that I incorporate in my business. Oh, I'll. I'll think about being replaced as a founder in my company. It becomes a lot easier if we deeply understand the, the driving force. But to kick off, I'm curious, dude, what does a life look like without less doing? What does a life look like with more doing? What are examples of how people drive themselves to the ground when uh, they could be doing so much less and following your philosophy? Yeah, so, I mean, I, I, that's, that's what this was born from, right? I lived that life. And now I see that so often with so many people. And so for me, you know, I've told this story a thousand times. So I'm always trying to think of different ways to tell it. Mm. I was working in construction in real, well, I was working in real estate development. I got very involved in the construction side of things. And uh, I was working, you know, 18 hour days. I was smoking a pack of cigarettes a day, eating a lot of fast food, drinking, and just kind of being pretty generally reckless with my body and my health and my my mind in a lot of ways and uh when i was 23 my my body broke and i was diagnosed with Crohn's disease now not everybody has this sort of you know epiphany moment like that but i didn't just have one i mean i've had uh, quite a few actually <laughs> over over the years and when i say quite a few i mean quite a few like near-ish death experiences wow basically and with the Crohn's disease, uh, there were sort of, there was, a, there was quite a few and one was in the hospital one night and another one was actually when I got some really bad news about my illness and I ended up rolling my truck over on the highway in Pennsylvania. Wow. 
And uh, I've been very, very fortunate. I mean, I've actually been involved in a plane crash, actually, well, two plane crashes, technically. Um, what? So, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I've been very fortunate. And I always sort of use those as opportunities to sort of like think about how I would might want to do things differently. So hmm. the life without it basically is a life uh, caged. Hmm. Kind of the best way I can, can, can say it. You have no freedom, no flexibility and really no focus because what that looks like for most people, most founders, particularly, and most people in the business we deal with, but, but particularly, you know, we're talking to founders here, we're talking about founders is that they are by far their own worst enemy. They've cr literally created the prison that they have locked themselves into. And for some reason, we think that the only way to get out, is to be a worse prisoner, <laughs> you know. Damn, um, and that's what it feels like for so many people. They feel like they've created this business that, Absolutely. on the one hand, provides a life that they don't enjoy, and and not only because they don't have the time for it, but in many ways, it's a, a lot of people who gain success and then find out that that's not what fulfillment looks like. Mm. This is something that I don't think that you'll ever hear another business coach nope. say, but I really don't believe that any business mm -hmm. has the ability to provide you with true fulfillment. Ooh. And you have so many entrepreneurs who are like, oh, I love my business. I love helping my clients. And I do. I love my clients and I love the work we do. And I think that we have really great impact, but the business does not fulfill me. Coming up with interesting solutions and innovation, innovative methods and things, those are definitely enjoyable, but those don't yeah. fulfill me. I have passions outside of my business that fulfill me. And that's not, you know, I'm not judging, but to, sure. to see a business as the potential source of your fulfillment, I think is something that is very misguided. That's a very and, different perspective. What do you think makes it so that it's not possible for most people to find fulfillment in the business? Because I think that a lot of us, and when I say us, I mean entrepreneurs are suffer from some level of identity crisis in many mm. ways. Uh, and I have a, um, a background in some, well, I mean, I have a background in psychology to some extent. I've also coached, you know, hundreds of people over the years. And there are some really interesting sort of social, so, psychosocial theories about different aspects that really relate to this. And, and one of them talks about something known as identity diffusion. Mm -hmm. And basically it's a, it's a stage in a young adult's life where they're kind of supposed to figure out like who they are and what they're made of and what they stand for. Mm -hmm. And there's a, and the, this is not based on any, you know, official research. This is just the different dots that I've connected over the years, but there was this great study done in the nineties, I think by the um, national foundation for teaching entrepreneurship. And what they found was that most young entrepreneurs, like 75% or more of young entrepreneurs came from households where the father was physically or emotionally absent hmm. and the mother was overbearing. <laughs> so what, right. So what that creates is a formula for somebody to do a lot of things to try to get attention huh. and to try to stand out Yes. or the opposite, which is to just kind of try to disappear. Uh-huh. Right. And so I started my first company when I was 12 mm. and my second when I was 16 and my third when I was 17. And I'm on my, I think this is, you know, the seventh venture that I created. And that always seemed like such a cool thing to be like this serial entrepreneur. But yeah. in a lot of ways, it's really just like entrepreneurs are just having like midlife crises over and over and over and over to try to figure out who they are. Mm -hmm. And I finally figured out who I am and it's not anything to do with my business. I'm, I'm a business coach for sure, but that's not who I am. Who, who are you? How do you define that today? So if I, if I want to be like coy about it, I'd say that I'm a maker and a fixer. Hmm. But the thing that I identify with the most in my life and more than I ever have is as an EMT. Hmm. So I, I volunteer as an EMT. I have been for nine years and I've worked with four different ambulance companies over the years. So I'm, I work with a fire department right now and it's the most fulfilling work I've ever done in my life. And the success of my business enables me to have the time and the energy and the focus to do that, which yes. 
inevitably brings me to fulfillment. So the, the business is a means to an end. But Beautiful. Beautiful. Wow, this is so refreshing, man. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you figured it out. <laughs> Thank you, dude. <laughs> um, well, I, I, I said something the other day in my in my Facebook group with you know several thousand people in it, and I said that uh, it's I think it's really important that everybody finds some sort of pro bono passion in their yes. life. Uh, yeah. Because there's actually really cool research as well, which essentially shows us that as soon as you get paid for something that you love doing, you stop loving doing it. There is absolutely a correlation there. And there are so many people, especially in artistic realms and creative realms that eventually lead to this form of self-sabotage as a result of that. Um, because there's a crisis that happens when they're beginning to get paid for the work itself. And it just completely eradicates the reason that they did it in the first place. It just sort of falls apart as a construct. They're just like, I don't, there's no joy in this anymore because there's no freedom. It's not unbound anymore. You know, it's confined. Which is funny too, because to me, I think that restrictions are the most beneficial mm -hmm. tool in terms of innovation. Mm -hmm. But there's one other thing too that I want to just add to that, which is there's uh, a particular research-based point of view that basically says that entrepreneurs are essentially an evolutionary irritant. And essentially we've been around to just mess things up to try to make them better or different at least or change them. And as you just alluded to, if there's nothing around us to fix or change or make better, then we self-sabotage. Mm. Man, I can't tell you how much of my, you know, I, I'm personally so deeply interested in these topics that, that you are, you know, this incredible expert in, and it was driven out of my own suffering years and years and years of having a disposition toward wanting to understand efficiency, productivity, trying to build expertise myself, working and helping people in these areas myself, developing the right systems, which I think certain people have a bit more of an ability to wrap their minds around. You know, I come from a world where I see and help people look at the world in different ways based on how they naturally already are wired and processed and what we call brain type. So I do see some people are really good about jumping into um, a structure with constraints and setting up a system and following through with that system. Other people are not naturally necessarily good at that, at setting up that system, but if you give it to them, they also reap the rewards and the benefits. I think everybody can benefit from these constraints from uh, you know, everything that you're doing with less doing. But the challenge, the reason that I'm most passionate about it is that not only have I suffered, but I've seen so many people who suffer and I still continue, man, to be surrounded by people, whether I work with them, whether I'm, you know, my own wife and I talk about this all the time. And I hate to put her on the, on the spot because I usually say amazing things about her on the podcast. But I mean, that reactive way of leadership, you know, she's this incredibly successful leader at a private school just absolutely crushes it. The whole team, the whole community relies on her. She runs the show, but she's doing in, in so many ways, what you described earlier, that so many leaders do, so many entrepreneurs do. They just take that pie and they keep expanding it. And they tell themselves that if they do it faster, that they'll stay caught up, that they'll be able to be successful by just speeding up the output. And your whole philosophy is the opposite of that. But man, I have seen so many people crash and burn, myself included. When I first started Project Evo, okay, wow, raised money. I got to be responsible for this. I got to build a team. I got to make the right hires. I got to understand legal. I got to understand all these different processes. Next thing you know, the weight of the world is on your shoulders and there is no fulfillment in that at all whatsoever. So how does a person who's like trapped in that mindset, not even in that mindset, because they don't, they're not even aware of their mindset. Cause I'm sure you've seen so many people just purely trapped where they can't seem to get out. And the, like, do people ever say to you, like, you don't understand, like, I have to do this. This is the only way that it is. How do you break th through to somebody like that? <laughs> Myself included, feel free to break my, my brain open on this. Yeah. Well, and so this happens all the time. And it's not always, it's, it, they don't usually say you don't understand. It's always more along the lines of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But my business is different. Different. All right. No, this is, I, yeah, I, I can see how that might work in that situation, but this, you know, we're unique. All right. So we are not that unique. 
And holding on to that, this uniqueness mm -hmm. is the biggest, single biggest problem hmm. that we have with entrepreneurs. So God, there's so many ways to unpack this. Uh, so we have this, we, we basically teach in less doing in the replaceable founder, these four different mindsets and the there it's cog engine engineer and inventor. And we want people to be operating inventor ideally, but many people are operating at the cog level. And the thing that usually what we say keeps people from the going from the cog level to the engine level is the fear and ignorance line. And the myth mm. that people tell themselves is that I'm unique. It's always been down to me and I've just got to hustle. And what they need to tell themselves, the myth buster in that case, is that you're not that unique and you need to become more replaceable because sure, you were unique in the fact that you started the business, hmm. but you need to be able to release yourself from all the stuff that you're doing, not only so that you can elevate the business, but so that other people have a chance to be elevated with you. Mm -hmm. And so... This idea that you're so unique is so problematic and so pervasive and so ego driven that uh, many times it's it's the it's the reason that businesses fail. It's the reason that mm -hmm. businesses never see seven figures. It's the reason that businesses uh, never progress beyond comfort, really. And I had a professor in college in my real estate development classes actually, who used to say, uh, never be irreplaceable. Because if you can't be replaced, you can't be promoted. Yeah, that's a very true statement. And a lot of entrepreneurs be like, well, I don't need to, you know, there's no promotions in entrepreneurship. It's like, well, that's not true because you're doing the work of the entry level position in your business for a lot more of your time than you might think. Mm -hmm. And, the CEO role, the founder or the CEO role typically in a growing business is the very last role to get defined, mm -hmm. which means you become the catch-all. Yep. And so anytime something needs jumping in, you're the one that jumps in. And so many of these founders are just afraid to even provide the opportunity for their team members to step up and possibly fail and maybe make a mistake but you know, eventually grow from it. So they need to stop thinking that they're so unique. And also the thing you mentioned before about being able to even recognize that there's a problem. Right. I like this expression that you, know, you can't read the label from inside the jar. Mm -hmm. And so many entrepreneurs end up siloing themselves. They might have a team and they might go out for beers and have team building and do trust falls and whatever other stupid stuff they want to do at team building events. But they don't actually connect with other human beings in, the, in those ways. And they don't allow themselves to be vulnerable in those ways as well. Mm -hmm. I have a very clear setup with my team at this point. And if I do something that is outside of my role or I even attempt to, or even ask about it, the alarm bells go off mm -hmm. and they stop me and they have that ability. They're allowed really? to. They're encouraged. Mm. Yes, absolutely. And it works really well. And it mm -hmm. protects it. What, what we ultimately end up doing, I find so much of the work that I do is protecting the entrepreneur's team from the entrepreneur's mind. <laughs> We're dangerous. Yeah, we can, we can really not only be a danger to ourselves, but, but to others at times. Um, and there's so much variety among the type of entrepreneurs. And so you get very different desires that come out and you drive your team to do very different things. And it can feel very chaotic for people. I, I think that's absolutely a good point. Well, I mean, do you know, ever heard the joke, why don't cowboys skydive? No. Because it scares the hell out of the horses. <laughs> <laughs> yeah they don't want to be along for that ride and they don't have a choice in many cases you know it's funny entrepreneurs right they like they read an article or they read you know the latest like seth godin book mm -hmm. or they go to some conference and then they call their team like hey we're implementing this amazing new strategy and we're signing up for infusionsoft by the way yep. and make it happen you know i'll talk to you in two weeks I've and then a lot. And then yeah. four days later, it's like, whoa, I just read this other thing. It's so cool. We got to do this right away. This, 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 uh, that other thing is back burner. Oh, mm. we already put something else on the back burner. Okay, whatever. It's fine. Let's just get to it. It, it it's, it's, um, it's dangerous and it's really fun in the beginning. And it's really fun when yes. you're and you're making five figures. That's fun. But if you ever want to 
actually build a business rather than just owning your own job, then that has to change. It really does. And that's so true what you said about it being fun in the beginning, especially for founders and entrepreneurs really have to realize that uh, if you're not building a sustainable game plan from day one, you're, you're, you're screwed down the road. Like these little building blocks that again, I, I feel that these things are somewhat natural to some people and not very natural to others. And in those cases where it's not natural, they need to seek out the advice of those people that are exceptional at building these systems and the education behind it, like someone like you and say, okay, that, that's, that's just a weakness of mine, but I understand the importance of if I'm attempting to build a brick wall, I need to make sure that every single brick is laid perfectly with speed and great execution, but there needs to be an architect and a blueprint and a game plan, and it needs to be sustainable. And we need to know exactly where we're going and how, and that doesn't mean there isn't room for nuance and variety and infusion soft and changing something. It just means that you need to have that, that structure in place because what happens in the beginning, and I, and I see this all day long and it happened to me as well as there's so much rocket fuel and excitement in the beginning when you're starting a new enterprise and everything is leading to growth, or at least it appears to be leading to growth. And all I ended up doing myself to, to start personalizing it a little bit is I not only added uh, projects into projects, but expanded so far wide at times, instead of going more narrow into something. But all I was really doing was go, okay, this is working well, let's hire a person to own this and hire a person to own this. But when you're not thinking ahead about your role, that catch all part as the founder is really dangerous. Like there was a time where I, I think I was easily putting in 19 hours, man, like 18 hours every day, barely sleeping. And if I was sleeping, it was just like, I was dreaming of work. And I told myself that this was fun and that it was my baby and it was supposed to be this yeah, way. And I had this whole story of holding it all together and the baby. Yeah. The baby story must be one you hear a lot, but dude, all I did at the end of the day truly is enslave myself. And there wasn't the deeper fulfillment no matter. And then I went, okay, no, 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 this isn't fulfilling anymore. Oh, I must be forgetting. I must be forgetting the purpose. Let me go back to the purpose of it all and get really clear on how we're helping people. But still, it becomes empty toward the end if you don't have any quality of life. Like, if you're not sleeping, taking care of yourself, you have no quality of life. I, I could have gotten very sick. I'm lucky that I that I didn't. And I see people that that do, and you know from experience that that you easily can. So it's just, I think that this, this work is some of the most important work in the world. And I don't say that lightly because the the real thing that you're saying is, I am helping people create boundaries in something that actually ultimately I believe isn't going to provide the fulfillment that they need. Like, let's not forget that. <laughs> this is all about a container to make the work more efficient, to have more quality of life outside of all of this. And I think a lot of times people get stuck in the, let me just get more efficient game, right? Yeah. And you know, there's a big difference between being efficient and being effective, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, Honestly, I think Tim Ferriss really put it best when he said that productivity is about producing more, efficiency is about producing more with less, and effectiveness is about producing the right things. Mm -hmm. And we run into problems with that too because what some people think is the right thing is often not, and a lot of times it's based on what they see other people having as the right thing. And, you know, th th look, there's a reason. I mean, it's not a coincidence, rather, that when you have in, more often, I'd say men than women, but when you have a young guy that makes some money or a little bit of success, most of the time they get a really nice car, right? Mm. Uh, that happens a lot. And it's always, a, it's a gift to myself, right? It's like, well, and, and maybe that really does give you fulfillment. And I actually have a friend who is a very successful founder and recently bought himself a very, very nice car. And he literally takes that car to like get milk at the corner. Like he loves <laughs> the car and that's totally fine. Yeah. But, you know, the pursuit of stuff is, and that's a whole other issue in some ways, but sure. And, and also I'm not, I'm not here to like on a soapbox saying like I'm, I'm altruistic and I don't care about money either. Mm. I mean, I have four children that are young and, you know, we, we need money to, to do mm -hmm. things, a lot of money to do things, but that's, that's a byproduct. I think that the money needs to be sort of a strategic byproduct and if you've always wanted the, you know, the Ferrari, or whatever, since you were a 12 year old kid and you finally get to do it, that's great. And that's, and that's fine. But 
there's there's also that you know that side of psychology that basically says that like the negative feelings are essentially like twice as long last twice as long as positive feelings so mm. if you get a if your if your neighbor gets a new hot car ferrari whatever their enjoyment of it will last half as long as your upset with themness will yeah. last right right um so that's why again like you need to have something that truly like fulfills you yeah. and 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 sometimes it can come in very surprising ways like i said for me the emt stuff is very surprising to a lot of people mm-hmm. like that's my thing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you only know unless you go out and actually have the time to try those things. (laughs) So if you don't have the time, uh, you'll never even discover what it is that might fuel you with that true elusive passion that people talk about, you know? Well, and, and, and even that, I'll just go on that a little bit further. So there, one of my, or my favorite book ever is the book is called emergency by Neil Strauss. I don't know if you've read it. Yeah, I have. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was his second book, but, uh, it's essentially for anyone who hasn't read it, like I highly, highly recommend it. And basically it's about a guy who has essentially like a panic attack after nine 11 and decides like he needs to be better prepared for a world that might end. So he basically gets all these skills like survival skills and uh, shooting and hand-to-hand combat and he becomes a paramedic and all this stuff. And so uh, I had already done several of the things actually that he did when I read the book and I ended up doing some more that he had done in the book. And there's still, there's a difference between like the pursuit of skills mm-hmm. um, rather than like, again, true enjoyment. And now, of course, you have to try things out and see if you like them. But there is that element that you have to watch out for, very similar to entrepreneurs who keep starting new projects and new businesses. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, I got this skill. Now I'm going to do another skill. And just so I can say I have this skill, you know? Right, right. So it's tricky. It's really tricky. Hmm, that's a very good point. So one of the uh, obstacles, let's say, we'll call them, and I'm sure you have a better word for it, that people face when you're working with them that you commonly see like one is just this story of my uniqueness what what are some of these other blocks that people have to actually stepping into like letting go and doing less and and actually implementing this system so uh there's there's two other really big issues that come up uh, and one the first one depends a little bit on the industry but there are a lot of industries and uh, the one that comes to mind immediately is like doctors and dentists, for example, mm-hmm. where they technologically, they're very advanced in, in many ways, very, very advanced, but operationally they're doing things the way they've been doing them for 150 years, mm-hmm. literally, you know, and that's because uh, an 80 year old, you know, professor of dentistry taught the students how to do it the way that he always did and then that's how they teach it and they don't see any reason to do it differently because it works for everybody else you know so so and we see that in financial services a lot too like like financial analysts and financial advisors uh certainly with accounts a lot of professional services lawyers and things like that but but even SaaS companies to some extent like there's just this tendency and i think that people sometimes see it as like a heuristic you know like a shortcut because oh well Mm -hmm. they've already figured out i'm not going to reinvent the wheel but then you know elon musk you know reinvented the wheel right like Mm -hmm. cars were fine in some ways but the 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 tesla is not really a car and Mm -hmm. a lot of the injuries so uh that's one thing which is just in in many cases that's honestly just a very frank conversation about like what's possible because they literally like don't even know in some cases i spoke to uh a what is he i guess he's a financial analyst uh and i was talking about something and i mentioned slack and he this is like a month ago and he had never heard of slack before mm-hmm. and it's like a really big firm that he works with and it was i was just shocked and he didn't even know like conceptually like what it was because they're so used to using outlook right for everything mm. In that way so that's some of it which is just you know a shift in what they've seen before um but then the other one is a level of opacity basically that people mm-hmm. have where they keep things in their heads and some of that is because that makes them irreplaceable right that makes them more valuable in some ways because they're the one that knows but it really ends up hurting a lot of other people because it really just doesn't provide the opportunity for others to take over. So a good example of that, I spoke to a, a lawyer actually, 
uh, a while back and we're talking about his business and I asked him what the biggest challenge was. And he said that there's six junior partners, including himself, and they did like trusts and wills, I think. And he said, and then there's one senior partner, which happened to be his father. And he said, anytime we we draft up a will or trust, whatever, my dad has to review the document. He insists mm-hmm. on reviewing it before we send it out to the client. It's like, okay. And so that's, a, you know, six partners, you know, funneling down into one. And so obviously pretty major bottleneck. And so I asked him, I said, have you ever, you know, documented his review process? And he said, well, no, you know, he's just been doing it for like 30 years. And so he just does what he does. I said, okay, well, why don't you watch him do it next time? And if he makes a change, ask him why he made it. And if he can't explain it, which I would be surprised, I said, that's, that's a problem. And if he can't explain it, you now have a decision tree to mm-hmm. start making, right? And then when he makes the next change, I ask him why I made that. And it could, you know, the thing is, is he never thought to do that. And it could be something as simple as like, I prefer to use this word than this word, right? Right. Uh, and why? Well, I just do. Okay, fine. So that's what we can use from now on. Yeah. So he did that for a couple of weeks. And after codifying basically what had previously been thought of as this nebulous genius wizardry of knowledge, he was able to codify it into simple like this or that, this or mm-hmm. that, this or that. Mm-hmm. And he now reviews one-tenth of the documents that he used to review because hmm. we were able to do a very simple machine learning model right, right. that essentially would like compare those rules to what they were putting forth. So that was huge, right? And now they actually have 10 partners at the firm that are uh, in the, and they're, they massively increase their business. And it's just that stumbling point that like, Oh, they've been doing it for so long. They just know how to do it. But if that were the truth, then society could never progress. Yep. Right? Like it would be impossible. Mm-hmm. And and part of it too, and not to like wax poetic about this, but we don't have real like apprenticeships anymore. You know, back in the mm-hmm. turn of the century, like you'd grow up, you'd be five or six years old and you'd start working for your father, mm-hmm. right? And you would learn a trade. Um, and that just doesn't happen anymore. It hasn't happened really since World War II, essentially. Mm-hmm. So the idea of this and and to to make that even more clear right the whole point of legacy and being a parent and being a father being a mother back then was to transfer knowledge like that was mm-hmm. one of our jobs and now it's not hmm. there's a separation actually yeah yeah, yeah. For each uh generation almost like exists as its own individual entity there's no continuation at all <laughs> of the knowledge well, yeah right and especially and you know the, it's a blessing and a curse that you can learn True. anything on youtube basically now right and kids know that and and it, it i mean so i picked up over this this time in the pandemic i just happened to pick up woodworking mm. and i got really really into woodworking and i and i it's a it's the it's my hobby it's like it is my hobby now yeah. and i was while i was learning it two of my kids also got interested and were learning it alongside of me. And it was so fascinating because that's the first time I've had that experience really where it was like, no, no, this is how, you know, if you put the saw this way, like you can do this because I just learned this on YouTube myself. You know, uh-huh. so let me show you what this looks like in practice. Uh, but that whole idea of transfer of knowledge is lost to many people. And uh, it, particularly in businesses, like we just, we don't, we don't teach. Yeah, we really don't. Do you think there's a part of our identities that just doesn't want to let go of certain roles that we play? CEO, I am the catch-all. I hold this all together. I, uh, you can count on me because it's my company. You know, it's my money. It's my baby. So I have to. I have to. I have to. Is that just a part of a, an identity that just needs to be like? This is taught to entrepreneurs that that's not the way that it needs to be necessarily. How do we actually shift that? I mean, the thing is, is that nobody really, really teaches entrepreneurship. Yeah. Uh, and and this is coming from somebody who, you know, I went to the the Wharton School of Business undergrad mm-hmm. and I actually, the, the entrepreneurship major had been killed off because nobody was taking it. And I was part of a group of students that actually revived it. So I helped to mm-hmm. recraft entrepreneurship major. And one of the things that I, that we required is that it had to be a second major, 
right? Because I personally don't think that entrepreneurship in many ways is like a teachable skill. I think that the yeah. tools that come along with it are, mm-hmm. right? But the, learning those tools doesn't make you an entrepreneur, right? I could hand you a bunch of, yeah, I mean, not at all. you know, a bunch of auto mechanic tools doesn't mean that you're an auto mechanic. So uh, yes, it is this story that we tell ourselves and it's this, this hustle, the grind, the hustle and the grind and the head down, which is my, I hate that expression so much. Yeah. Says, oh, I've been head down. You know, <laughs> to me, that just means like you're, you're working inefficiently because anybody can dig faster. That doesn't mean you're doing it better or smarter. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. And so we do need to tell ourselves, we need to have that, that, that story shift. And I was, I, I had this conversation with somebody who was, uh, they were co-founders actually. Um, and, but it was like an older company. There was a logistics company that had been around for quite a while. And I think it was like 20 or 30 years. And one of the partners, and it wasn't a very large company, but they were successful enough. And one of the partners was really focused on the actual logistical, like mapping of things. So this, this person was responsible for like setting the truck routes and things like that mm. uh, for what they were doing. And they were at a, an event that I was speaking at and we, we spoke afterwards and I'm there with the two partners, um, these two older gentlemen, uh, probably in their fifties, maybe. Yeah. Probably in their fifties. And I showed them an app that was on product hunt that week. It happened to be on product hunt that week mm-hmm. that literally did everything that this guy has done for the last 20 years, right? And they, it's, it was like a free freemium app too. You know, you literally like put in all the address points, you put in the, whatever the system is and like it optimizes the route. And there's so many tools now that do yeah. route optimization. Like we literally, you know, any any startup now basically has access to UPS level route optimization if they want it mm. for pennies. And so the two of them look at each other almost and it's like, uh, he's just been made obsolete. And I saw it and I've seen that look many times before. I was like, wait, you don't, you don't understand. I was like, you have 30 plus years of experience and now you don't have to waste time anymore. And now you can use that experience to do something better for the company. This is a good thing. This is a good thing. Yeah. You know, and it was, it was like, it looked like he'd been punched in the stomach, you know? And it's like, obviously he wasn't gonna get fired because he was a co-founder, but yeah there's that initial reaction where it's like, I'm not needed anymore. Yeah. Awesome example. And, and, I've but, seen it so much. you know, and that's, that's, I don't want to be needed all the time. I don't want, I to, don't be, want to be needed. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think at the root of it, there's just a, a philosophy that needs to be understood. And it's one that ultimately says, um, you are not the integral part of this business. It's not about you. And there's so much ego behind all of this. And if you really want to be anything other than a solopreneur or just have a little side hustle, you have to be willing to let go of this, to let go of this identity. And I mean, dude, I got to be honest, the moment I got out of the way in my main company, everything got better for myself and everybody. But it took like some pain to realize the importance of getting out of the way. Now, luckily, it wasn't my first rodeo. Uh, In general, it was my first time building that type of a company. And luckily, I'm interested in these ideas so that I was learning as I was going and saying, okay, there's friction here. I should probably adjust. I need to move out of the way here. Oh, I just caused a bottleneck. You know, the main practice for me has been self-awareness, like just staying on top of where am I in the way? Where am I causing bottlenecks? How am I not empowering others? What can I do to empower others more and make them feel like business owners? And so luckily, I was good at getting out of the way. It took some pain, but I got out of the way. But man, so many people, they first need to start with the core of the philosophy of just understanding the importance of this. And like you said, this stuff is not taught in school. I actually had a really similar thing, man. I went to SDSU and I uh, was of the first generation that pushed to bring the entrepreneurship major. It was like an emphasis major back Mm -hmm. to SDSU. And it was a whole thing I had to do like almost an extra year, but I wanted to do it just because it was exciting to me. I was like, oh, I'll get to talk and (laughs) learn about entrepreneurship, which means absolutely nothing um, in the real world. But, you know, again, it's like until you experience that, it's very difficult. I have really wanted to understand from you what 
your process is for just if you could start from the most macro level. I mean, you obviously have four kids, you have this family, you're, you're moving, you're doing so many things all the time. You have multiple businesses, uh, you have a huge team. There's so many projects that you've opened and closed and have so many balls in the air and you're getting asked to be on podcasts from a macro level. When you sit and you look at your week, what is your process? And then on a daily basis, what is the overall workflow like? Like, what does a typical day look like? And I know that's a bit of a generic question, but is it, is it lots of variety? Is it very streamlined and very repetitive? Like what's, where's, you know, what's that workflow like? Well, so, uh, you know, this, this interview that we're doing is about an hour, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, this is the, this hour that I'm spending with you is the most work that I've done in a single day in weeks. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. This is a really good start to the story. (laughs) Uh, I love that. Yeah. So I would say that on average, I, well, not even, I can't say average because there are literally days where I don't do any work at all. Um, Wow. I'm very, I'm very much like, I I like tasks. I like having tasks and my team gives me tasks and they know that. Um, And I have some recurring tasks. I do a podcast every week, things like that, some Facebook lives. But essentially, I don't do anything other than creating content. Mm -hmm. Um, So obviously being on podcasts, doing uh, my podcast, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, once a month, I think they have me scheduled for, I do uh, like, a, I do a, a, I think a 45 minute call with my mastermind group, mm-hmm. um, which I've really sort of stepped out in a lot of ways. I do a lot of boxing um, with people, which takes, you know, minutes of here and there. But so uh, is that what you're bouncing around doing then throughout the day? Typically it's r- usually just, it's all coming to Voxer and, you'll have a set block time, not a set time, but just like, all right, I'm going to bust through these Voxers right now. And yeah. whenever it happens, yeah. it happens. Kind of. Yeah. So, so uh, Vo- yeah. So, and for people who don't know what Voxer is, it's basically like a walkie talkie app, essentially kind of like WhatsApp. We, you know, we, we talked about mm-hmm. it before, obviously. Uh, so my team, that's the primary, I, I would say that 90, 95% of my communication is done asynchronously. Mm-hmm. So what that means is like legitimately I could have 10 conversations through Voxer in five minutes, right? Because somebody might ask me a question, I'll respond. Um, we're always looking at, so, so I always, I really want to create everything for me is about creating content, like I said, yeah. and I'm always thinking about three different audiences when I'm creating content. The first one is potential customers. The second is current clients. Uh, and the third is my team. Hmm. Right. So, and a lot of times I'm able to create content that hits all three. Right. So like I've written some really cool articles on some very detailed processes that I've created. One of which was a hiring process. So the article was written in such a way that it was exciting and interesting enough that potential leads would be like, Oh, I want to do that. Uh, Current clients could see that and be like, let's, you know, help me set that up. And it was detailed enough Hmm. that my team could actually follow it and fill in the blanks. Right. So whether it's a, you know, I honestly, you know, be fully transparent, there are like two or three things that I've said in this conversation with you that I'm probably going to make other content out of because they, mm-hmm. they sort of struck me as sounding well. Uh, when I do voxes to other clients who have a question, things like that, those could become content. So I'm always looking at ways to create content because that's interesting to me. And ultimately, if it's not one of those sort of standard things, those weekly kind of things, then the only things that I'm really interacting with are really interesting problems. Mm. So it's really like if the team, like my COO just sent me this really really long boxer about a a culture issue that she's dealing with that she wanted my input on. And so I'm going to do that. Yeah. And that stuff is, uh, it's interesting and it's the problem of growing a great company. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And also, I should be setting the direction of the culture sure. anyway, it's my company. Uh, but then you might have a, like I had a, a, one client who had a question basically that ultimately resulted in me creating an automation that seemed impossible at the time. And so mm-hmm. it was, we call it the trigger, no trigger. So most automations need to be triggered based on something happening. Mm-hmm. This one was triggered on something not happening, mm-hmm. uh, which shouldn't be able to happen. But, I, you know, they, ha- they had it, they, they asked it, I sort of ruminated on it. 
and then I made, I, I figured it out. So, uh, yeah, I mean, look, the majority of my day is, is family stuff. I mean, today, uh, right now my youngest, my daughter is in person in school. My twin boys who are older than her are on zoom remote in two different classes. And then my oldest son is on Google meet, uh, in his school at a different class. And so we're sort of wrangling that and that's, that's like a lot of the day. And when I'm working EMT stuff, like that's, that's, uh, my focus at the time. Right. And when I can fill in in between, then maybe there's some woodworking or something else beyond that. But I'm always trying to enrich what I do. And ultimately, one of the things that being replaceable really allows you to do in terms of freedom is it gives you the freedom to leave the business. Yes. And not to leave because you don't want to be there or you want to leave permanently, but it allows you the opportunity to leave, experience, and discover new things that you can then bring back as contributions to the business. And that keystone gets missed Mm -hmm. far too often. Mm -hmm. So is there no sitting down at the beginning of the week or the month and saying, all right, man, I got to whiteboard this. These are my tasks. These are the things I need to do. This is what I need to delegate. This is what I need to, you know, is there any of that? Or it sounded like you said a lot, your, your team is assigning you tasks. So just to get to the fundamentals of that, like, what does that look like? You know what you need to do because your team's putting it in, in front of you. There's no like, huh, what do I need to do this week? These are the, these are the things related to the company. No. So, so there's, there's two things. There are two sides of that. One is that I'm able to do things very like on the fly, but not on the fly, meaning like, you know, without thinking about it, shooting from the hip. It means like, uh, we have a report, I have a report with my team. We have, we have a systems and processes set up in such a way Mm -hmm. that something as simple as my, uh, and, and, and keep in mind, it's important to note my COO, uh, is a tenure military vet and she went to west point before that she is very detail oriented mm-hmm. she likes structure she wow. does not like surprises uh-huh. uh, so she'll send me a 20 minute message like she just did and i will respond in you know usually 10 seconds or less with my answer mm-hmm. uh and a lot of times that's what it is she wants she has a re- she wants to get right. that thought out she wants to sort of hear herself discuss it and have the forum and the opportunity to do that i'm happy to do that and listen to it mm-hmm. and then i give her my answer and my decision so a lot of it is making decisions, which I can do very quickly. Yeah. And again, not shooting from the hip because I'm listening to her 20 minute message. I'm going to probably think about it for three or four hours or even more. Yeah. And these are the big, big, big problems. They're not just, they're not fires. It's not like little fires are coming to you that you're having to make these micro decisions on constantly. I am, I assume. Yeah. No. Right. And so I'll do that now on the task side of things. I know what I have to do every week, which actually, I think the only thing that I have to do every week is produce the podcast, which my mm-hmm. podcast is usually five to six minutes. So it, mm-hmm. and it's just me talking. It's great, by the way. It's Thank great. you very much. Yeah. Um, and, and so usually that's like on a, a Friday night, like I put the kids get to bed and then yeah. I'm, I let a thought out. Uh, but so like right now we're redoing our website mm-hmm. and we need to do a really professionally done, like, 20 minute long sort of VSL video for the front mm. of the, um, the thing. So my team had a big meeting about it. She, uh, Courtney is the one, my CEO, she's the one who was dealing with the website company and she didn't have a discussion with me at all. Didn't tell me anything. She made a Trello card for me with the bullet points that she wanted me to cover. And she's like, this is the context of what it is. Let's do it. And so I, looked at the bullet points. I wrote a script for myself. I recorded the audio of it the other night and put it on Trello. Right. So then a day later she listened to it. She looked at it and now we're going to get it filmed. And you know, that's going to take a week or so for us to get this all done. And it's very asynchronous. It's very much on my time. And and the key thing there is that I really, I, I basically get to work on anything I want when I'm at my best. Big point, <laughs> which is different for everybody. Yeah. Right. And that's the key thing is, so it's not that's like the beauty of working asynchronously. Well, exactly. And also the fact that we're able to communicate through Trello on a project mm-hmm. basis, which is really key because, and this is a whole other conversation, of course, which I know you understand, but uh, you shouldn't be using communication tools for discussing projects. 
you should be using mm -hmm. project management tools for discussing projects and tasks. Mm -hmm. And so it's very salient. It's very to the point, very specific. I did this whole script and I recorded this thing and she didn't like the ending. And so she's going to make some comments on the ending and then I'll re-record it. And it's not like we're getting in a room together and like, oh, how does this sound? No, like, you know, on the whiteboard, like some yeah. people do that very well, but that would not work well for me. Mm. And so do you avoid yeah. all types of, you know, okay, weekly Zoom meeting, brainstorming meeting? Oh, we've reached a point in this project where we just need to get together and discuss this. Do you just, no? Do you draw hard lines on things like I, that? I mean, more, it's more, yes, I draw the hard line, but I also call BS on that, right? Because a yes. lot of times people think that they have to do that, mm. you know, and they think that, you know, a really good example of this is sales. Okay. So, yeah. Um, I was actually talking to a friend the other day who is a, uh, he does mergers and acquisitions and he's a partner in his company, but he works, he, he's, he is a hard worker. He works like 12 hour days and they're, they're busy and they've actually been really busy even throughout the pandemic. But he said, he was telling me the other day, like the biggest difference, you know, is like this not traveling. He's like with these big deals, yeah. these multi-million dollar deals, people just expect you to like fly to Switzerland for, you know, be out of the office for three days, sit at the table, shake their hand and sign a paper because that's just the way they do it. Now we don't have to do that anymore. And it's incredible. And so that idea that people have with that, and I, I really do push the limits on this stuff. So yeah. Sales is the is like the perfect example of this. Everybody just assumes like, oh, you just you got to get on the phone, you know, hammer like especially if they're ever cold calling, right? Like, right. you got to get on the phone, call twenty times, get them on the phone. So I did an experiment and I did a uh, uh, a webinar. It's a tactic with webinars, and a lot of people have done this. It's not something that I created, but when people register for your webinar, a lot of people will have like a video on the thank you page. It's like, hey, thanks for mm -hmm. signing up for the webinar. If you don't want to wait for the webinar, you know, you can book a call and one of our people will tell you everything about it, mm -hmm. which works really well. I tried something different with that. And I said uh, in the video, I was like, thanks for registering the webinar. If you want to talk to me now, click mm -hmm. this button below and learn about Voxer. Mm. And you can uh, communicate with me asynchronously whenever you want on your schedule. And so we tried that. And all of a sudden on a Sunday morning, I started getting random people Voxing me. Yeah. and telling me about their business problems. And I would respond minutes or hours later, and they would respond mm -hmm. minutes or hours later. And over the course of a week, I closed four sales hmm. for a, what's technically a high ticket item with each one averaging a total of, I'd say seven minutes of audio exchange over the course of an average of one to two days. Wow. Right. No so, scheduling a meeting, no sitting down, looking at each other for 30 minutes, 45 minutes, no demo, no presentation, no, none of that. And if you think about the most talented, the most hardworking salesperson, yeah. maybe does 10 calls in a day, maybe. Yeah. The talented asynchronous salesperson can do 100. Hmm. I hope salespeople are listening. That's huge. My brother's in sales. <laughs> I'm gonna have well, to but, but, and you, but you and you had this experience with me as well, right? You contacted me about getting on the show, and I responded on Instagram. Yeah, voxwithari.com. Yep. Right, because this became such a common thing for me now that I got voxwithari.com. Anybody listening is welcome to go check it out. And there's a one-minute YouTube video where I basically said, "Look, pandemic's made things crazy. I'm not doing calls. Vox me, and this yeah. is how you do it." Right. Yeah. And it I'm worked. blown away. And you can handle the volume. It's, it's remarkable actually though, but it makes sense because you just have one main inbox and you're like, as I go throughout my day, when the right time strikes, I'm going to look through these and respond. Well, the, the thing is too, the reason that it's so manageable for me, mm -hmm. there's, there's a couple reasons. One is that uh, I can listen to it anywhere. I can listen to it in the car, on a bike, like wherever, wherever I am, you can listen. Right. Yeah. I happen to process audio information really, really well. So Same. like one person on my team is not, she doesn't love it, but mm -hmm. we work with that. I can process audio information very well, but just knowing that you don't have to respond immediately mm -hmm. kills the pressure. Mm. Right. So that means that like, I know that even if it's like a client who's so, and this doesn't happen very often, fortunately, but maybe it's a client that's really pissed off. Yeah. Maybe it's an important client and they're mad and they send me a five minute boxer message with curses and, and that's actually never happened. But uh, I still know that I can absorb it, breathe and respond to it later. Yeah, absolutely. Which is so healthy. 
so healthy. And we often don't get enough. I think a lot of people overvalue this and they say this is the right way to, to have the conversation. But I agree. Um, having time to think and respond appropriately is very important. Aria, a couple uh, last just kind of quick fire questions and we'll, and we'll wrap this up. This has been amazing. I'm curious of all of the tools that you use, what are your current in, in the workflow? What are the favorites right now? And what would be the one that if I took away from you would just like hurt the most? You'd be like, you just took my arm off. That would be boxer hands yeah. down. No question. So the majority of the tools that I use on a regular basis are communication tools and they're for different types of communication. So uh, Voxer for sure is the number one. Intercom is really huge for our business for creating a shared inbox for all sorts of things. Um, Slack is a big one for us and then Trello and those four. And honestly, if I, Voxer and Trello are. Do you engage on Slack? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And, and not, we don't, the fact that we use different types of tools for different types of communication means that no one tool is, you know, overflowing with stuff. So, but Voxer and Trello, that duo to me is the, that's. Yeah. Communication and, and projects. Yeah. Keep things moving. Got it. Awesome. Who and or where do you personally learn from? Like, cause you're, it's not like you've been stagnant for 10 years and, Oh, this is my system and that's it. So some of it must be from experimentation. Obviously you're learning as you go, but is there a person or a resource that you really value? I can tell you that, you know, every, every system and method and framework that I've created has been a response to a problem that I was experiencing Mm. and experimenting therein. Mm. Now, I have been very fortunate to have been exposed to some of the greatest business minds that are currently alive, uh, both as a mentee and as a consultant. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that I take little bits from everybody else. And I, honestly, I would say that one of my, like one of my talents, one of my real abilities is to connect the dots of what seems to be really disparate information. I can see patterns and things that often people don't. Um, so there is no one particular resource that I would mm-hmm. say that I turn to, but more of a, uh, a spider web of them. Yeah. Yeah. So you're just constantly taking it. Got it. Is there no particular business uh, leader at all that you would say that you find to, to kind of do it really well that you not necessarily even just look up to, but you're like that, that person like is really doing it right. They're, they're living the less doing philosophy. Is there anyone like that? <laughs> uh, probably Richard Branson would be one. Mm, that's a great you know, example. Yeah. There's a, there's a wonderful picture of Branson on a conference call on his boat and his like five-year-old son is like standing on his lap and looking out the window. Yeah. Um, and it, he just looked happy. Oh know? yeah. And as, and as we both know, I don't know if you spent time with him, but as we both know, so many of our friends as well, you know, constantly talk about that's, that's who he really is. Like when you're on his island and you're with him, whatever's going on, he's actually prioritizing play. It's all about play. It's all about the fulfillment. There's some fulfillment obviously coming from this incredible company that he's built but so much of it is coming from outside of that. And I think that's just your key message, man. And it's a beautiful one. And I'll give you one other too, which is, a, which is one that a lot of people probably don't know about, but it's John Paul Giorgio, who is the founder of Paul Mitchell. Yeah. Um, so he's a multi-billionaire. And doesn't, doesn't have email, right? Has never had an email. <laughs> has never had a computer. <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah. Never had a computer. Either, you know, and was in a biker gang when he was younger and, um, had like a son when he was like 16, I think, who he's very close with now. Like, so, uh, yeah, he's a pretty good one. That's a very good one. Um, thank you so much, Ari. I really appreciate this. It's been awesome. Um, just last words from you. What's the best place for people to go to work with you, to check you out and, um, any requests? Uh, lessdoing.com is the best place. Uh, my, Facebook group, I think is a really great resource. People can go to less.do slash Facebook. It's a replaceable founder on Facebook. And uh, we've got about 3000 people in there now, which is it's, that's a really great resource and a great place to connect with us. I'll jump in there. I'll be in there. I'll, uh, I'll include everything in the show notes. Thank you so much, Ari. Appreciate you. 
There it is, my conversation with Ari Mizell. Hope you enjoyed. Thank you for tuning in to this episode. Um, I really just love getting to do this. So let me know who you want to see on the podcast. Any requests for future guests? I, uh, I'm continuing to just do it the way that I know how, which is to find and connect with the most fascinating people. To be honest with you, these are all so far people that I already either know or am connected to or am friends with that I'm like, I would just have an awesome conversation with this person. I'm fascinated by this person. And that that really is my driving force. I'm not trying to create a show that just becomes this interview series where I get into a rut of just you know, having to bring on the next guy who's got a book launch and talk about their book. So this really means a lot to me. And I'm really um, being intentional about how I do this podcast. So let me know how it's going for you. I appreciate you. Thank you for tuning in. Much love to you. Make sure you subscribe, text me and check out armanasadi.com. The show notes for this episode will be in the podcast section, armanasadi.com forward slash podcast. Until next time, one love. Peace. Peace.